Nominations are now open for the 2022 Sobe Art Award. This year, the Sobe Art Award celebrates 20 years of championing visual arts in Canada. Founded in 2002, the award is funded by the Sobe Art Foundation and organized and presented by the National Gallery of Canada. This year, a total of $400,000 in prize money will be awarded. $100,000 to the overall winner, $25,000 to each of the shortlisted artists, and $10,000 to the remaining longlisted artists. In addition, the five shortlisted artists will be featured in an exhibition at the National Gallery of Canada, with the winner announced at a gala ceremony this fall. Learn more at gallery.ca slash Welcome to Momus the Podcast. We are your hosts, Sky Gooden and Lauren Wetmore. I'm very proud today to be introducing an interview with the Lithuanian curator and writer Raimunda Smelishauskas. Yeah, this is a very timely interview as Raimundas recently announced his resignation as curator of the Russian Pavilion at the Venice Biennale, which is set to open next month. Yes. So Rai, together with the two artists representing Russia, who are Alexandra Sukareva and Kirill Savchenkov, withdrew their participation in response to Russia's military invasion of Ukraine. Yeah, yeah. And I know their decision was reported by some sources like The Times and Art News as being uh, a part of a number of cultural withdrawals, although Rise was definitely the first that I saw. Um, mm. But they include like the closure of Garage Museum and Ragnar Kjartansson's closure of his show at the VAC Foundation's Moscow site. Yes, there's also been reporting on the situation with Ukraine's Venice Pavilion. Um, as I understand it, the Ukrainian team is committed to moving forward with their presentation um, with the assistance of the Biennial, of course, but the artists and the curators are currently sheltering in Ukraine um, while transportation for themselves and artworks to Venice remains totally impossible through regular channels. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it feels very important for the biennial to be lending as much aid as possible to Ukrainians in this situation, obviously. But also, I was struck by the call for support of Russian culture that Rai makes in his resignation letter. Well, I've got it here. Quote, I believe that people from Russia should not be bullied or cast away solely due to their country's oppressive policies and actions. Yeah, Rai talks a lot in this interview about the very difficult situation that uh, Russian artists and cultural workers are facing right now. Um, and I think it's really important for him to stress and for us to stress that his resignation should not be seen as sort of dismissing that context. Um, but he stresses in the, in, in the interview that there are different Russias. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Can you tell me a bit more about Rai's position, like in the larger context of all of this? Yeah, sure. I mean, even before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Rai's position as curator of the pavilion was pretty complex. Um, in this interview, he discusses his position as, quote, colonized because he grew up behind the Iron Curtain in Lithuania when it was part of the USSR, mm -hmm. but also as colonizer because um, he hasn't been working in Lithuania for the past 15 years. And he sees this invitation to curate the Russian pavilion as due to the successes that he's had um, in his career in the West. Oh, wow. Wow. 
Well, and Raimundus is certainly known for being drawn to complexities, let's say. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, definitely. But once Russia waged war on Ukraine, um, I think his participation in the pavilion was no longer a complexity. Right. Um, as he wrote in his resi- resignation letter, quote, this war is politically and emotionally unbearable and Rai's need to withdraw was immediately clear to him. Yeah, that was such a striking line. Mm-hmm. Um, and I understand that the artists felt the same. Yeah, they issued their own statement, um, which I want to quote here. They say, there is no place for art when civilians are dying under the fire of missiles, when citizens of Ukraine are hiding in shelters, when Russian protesters are getting silenced. Wow. Um so this interview then focuses on Rai's letter of resignation, but it teases out what led him to this decision, I assume, and how to express it. Also, we should say that this is held in person. Um, one of Rai's homes, I guess you could say, is in Brussels. Mm-hmm. And you two kind of go back a bit. Um, so I'm just very excited to sort of be dropped back into your connection. But um yeah, there's this complex web of reactions and consequences surrounding all of this. I mean, how did you sort of thread your way through? Yeah, I think we sort of we sort of tried to address it in the way that we address sort of all of the texts on this podcast. Um mm-hmm. even though this one sort of sits inside and outside of the of the sort yeah. of texts that we're trying to talk about and think about. Um and yeah, Raimundus and I have known each other for for quite a while, and he came over to my apartment to have this interview. It's the first one we've done in in person in what two years, mm-hmm. I think. So that felt mm-hmm. really nice. Mm-hmm. An important reason to talk to Rai about this is that I think over the past years we've become really familiar with instances of artists and curators withdrawing from biennials and cultural programs as a sort of political statement, but. This is a context with extremely high stakes mm-hmm. and his and the artists, a decision that goes beyond principle to encompass sort of very real consequences for everyone involved. Mm-hmm. And he speaks about those consequences and um, in a way that's really illuminating. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And just to sort of circle back to that note you just made about how this sort of sits inside and outside of what we've been doing in this podcast, for, especially for the last couple of years or mm-hmm. the last season and change, um, how do you sort of see this as, I don't know, functioning as criticism and writing? Or is that mm-hmm. something that you get into in terms of its format? Yeah, we don't so much discuss the format of the text, even though we do talk about how in fact, Raimundus usually, his writing usually does take the form of a letter. So mm. this, as a format, is not unusual to him. Mm. But we did manage to talk about his writing practice as a whole, which I think, which felt really good to me, because um, I think he's a really interesting writer. I was just re-listening to the interview and I was thinking that his description of the feeling of writing could also be maybe a description of the power of critical thought and action, both in art and politics. He says at the end that the pleasure of writing is, quote, witnessing the emergence of something that is within you and beyond yourself. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Well, I'm very excited for this. And I also just love Rye's voice. It's been so long since I've, 
I've been sort of surrounded by. So this, <laughs> I'm really looking forward to this, um, despite sort of the gravity of the circumstances. He's such a warm and thoughtful person, just fundamentally. Yes. So, well, without further ado, I will introduce Lauren Wetmore in conversation with Raimundas Malachowskis about his letter of resignation as curator of the Russian Pavilion at the 2022 Venice Biennale published on Rise Instagram on the 27th of February, 2022. Dear friends and colleagues, today I resign from the position of curator of the Russian Pavilion for the 59th Venice Biennale, which was scheduled to open in April of this year. My admiration and gratitude remain with the Russian artists, Alexandra Sukharova and Kirill Savchenkov with whom I've been working to develop the project for the Biennale. However, I cannot advance on working in this project in light of Russia's military invasion and bombing in Ukraine. This war is politically and emotionally unbearable. As you know, I was born and formed in Lithuania when it was part of the Soviet Union. I have lived through the Soviet Union's dissolution in 1989 and I have witnessed and enjoyed my country's development ever since. The idea of going back to or forward with living under a Russian or any other empire is simply intolerable. Before signing off, I shared my conversations with Alexandra and Kirill while developing the Biennale project constantly inspired new ways of seeing both the past and the future as we intensely experienced our present. They and so many other brilliant Russian artists are committed to the freedom of thinking, despite the fact that they live in an increasingly repressive context. I explicitly oppose the current assault and subjugation commanded by Russia. I also believe that people from Russia should not be bullied or cast away solely due to their country's oppressive policies and actions. I want to avoid flat falling divisions and instead advocate for multi-leveled forms of solidarity where there are international forums for art and artists from Russia to express the freedom that they cannot express at home. It is not easy to live among warmongers, least of all so for those who explore ways of being outside of normative structures. Thank you for your understanding and support. Hmm. So how did it feel to read it out loud? Uh, alienating in some way. Hmm. Alienating from the text or yeah. your decision? No, because... I feel no. Of course, decision decision is there, and it's all it's gonna always gonna be there. Yeah. But when you write something like this, I guess that intensity that goes into somehow like pronouncing it in your mind is quite different from when you read it like now, you know, reading it from the screen. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm sure that there are many ways how to read it, and. Uh, I guess the way I read it was to sort of to avoid certain dramatization right. that could possibly be applied there. Yeah. But I think it's already there in the text. 
And usually in the podcast, what we like to do is talk about a text, sort of how it came to be, how it was written, and then we talk about its reception. And I think this, usually we're talking about art criticism or art writing, and this, I think, sits obviously somewhat outside of that, but definitely has a relationship to it. So I want to sort of discuss it in the same way. Um, but then I understand that writing a text like this and like the decision leading up to it would be perhaps more complex than just writing an exhibition review. So maybe if you could tell us about like what, yeah, what is the lead up to you writing this? First, I'm really honored to be part of your series uh, on, on writing. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a pleasure to, to be talking about it in a peaceful way, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Hopefully. Because <laughs> as you can imagine, the mix of circumstances, and as you know, the mix of circumstances that this letter comes from is, is, is a war. Mm-hmm. is war on multiple levels. And I was not like re- I was not rehearsing to write this letter mm-hmm. in advance. However, the feeling, the sudden premonition, was there obviously that this is this may happen mm-hmm. that uh, the pavilion will not be opening and we will not be there mm-hmm. because we will it will not be opening because we will not be there. Right, yeah, and I think that's a big distinction. Yeah. During that week, the week of the 24th of uh, February, Mm -hmm. um, now it also feels like so long time ago. Yeah. I was was actually in Venice that week, and Sasha Sukhodeva was supposed to come, and... uh, Kirill Savchenko couldn't come anymore because he got stuck in Moscow. Mm. But we were reconvening there just to work on the pavilion. And uh, it was Wednesday morning when I woke up and I realized that probably this is not going to be happening. Mm -hmm. Because you could see that Russia invaded Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And all that, all that anticipation of what it will be, what it will not be, mm-hmm. that was international, like international media, suddenly like it just blew up. Yeah. Suddenly it was clear that this is happening. Mm-hmm. And so many people like didn't want to believe that this would be happening. And I think they stayed in this like a su- suspended mode, yeah. not wanting to believe and kind of exerting that disbelief that this could be happening. Mm-hmm. And perhaps I was also among among millions of people who didn't want this to be happening and didn't think that it would be happening. Mm-hmm. Why do you think you were exerting that kind of disbelief? Um, I was going through different like news channels mm-hmm. uh, just to have a prismatic way of seeing seeing it. Of course, if you if you read only New York Times. Although I have to give like you know all the credit to American intelligence that they they were already like uh, alarming it uh, you know since since months mm-hmm. ago. Uh, but if you read like only New York Times, of course it's a it's a very specific uh, picture of the world. Yeah. However uh, complex it is, mm-hmm. 
if you read, let's say, I sometimes read like South China Morning Post because I was spending some time in Hong Kong. There's another picture. Mm -hmm. If you read Lithuanian news, there's another picture again. Mm -hmm. If you read Russian news, there's something else. If you watch Al Jazeera, there's again like another agenda. Mm -hmm. And so it seemed that the Westerns were very like, Western media was very adamant in claiming that this is going to happen. Right. And they were unfortunately right. So this happened. Mm. And um, that Wednesday morning, I went to Rome, and that trip, train trip, was very, very turbulent emotionally because it was clear that this is like there is a before and after. Of course, we didn't know how long this war gonna last. Mm -hmm. you know, some people were saying maybe they just wanna like. Uh, extinguish some military bases and uh, they will not advance mm -hmm. and as you see like this is atrocious war waged mm -hmm. by russia that is not even called war yeah. in russia and you cannot call it war you're not allowed hmm. i mean if you call it war like you 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 may face a prison sentence mm -hmm. what do you call it then they call it special special military operation okay denazification of Ukraine. It's like all that Russian um, official bullshit that like uh, they, you know, their official channels like retained since like Soviet times and probably from before. Mm -hmm. But to me, like, you know, seeing that leader talking about uh, liberating mm -hmm. something is exactly like what I very well remember, like growing up in Soviet Union. It's the same, it's the same rhetoric. Hmm. But what has led to this letter also mm -hmm. probably was that I, on Monday night uh, of that week, I watched fully uh, Russian leader's speech. Mm. And it became much more clear to me, like, what kind of agenda is there? It's not about, like, uh, NATO sentiment, resentiment. It's very clearly that he positions himself in the history of the Russian Empire, of the Great Russian Empire, uh, to which, according to him, Lenin uh, induced some damage because Lenin kind of derailed what it was in the USSR times, giving too much national sovereignty to the countries hmm. that were part of the Russian Empire. And uh, then... Stalin was supposedly a bit even better. And then he sees himself as someone who is fixing it now. Right. And this is like when you suddenly realize what, what is that historical scheme? Yeah. What is that agenda where he also positions himself? This is like, uh, I hope that the global order somehow uh, refuses this. Mm -hmm. I really hope that the global forces are somehow containing this regime and with this like uh, quest for rebuilding the empire because mm -hmm. it's literally it's about rebuilding the empire hmm. with the worst of what it was before and with the worst of what it can be in future right so that's monday night and somehow like I'm, i was much more clear what what it's about right. because the leader uh, he actually like in his 
uh, way of reasoning, he made it very clear. And of course, like it, there are like jokes and criticism of that speech, of its content, or of the books that he has read mm -hmm. uh, in his isolation. But uh, I think he probably this is what uh, he he really thinks. Yeah, yeah. And then I arrived to Rome and spent a couple of days in Rome and went back to Venice and Sasha came and for us it was already clear that we're not gonna be doing our work for, for, for the pavilion. Okay. Nevertheless, like the, the works were taking place in the pavilion the floor was being laid and you know mm. uh, it was like in the process in the progress of what it was conceived to be right but we couldn't get to also to tell people they are working that like in our mind we already like we already done right and yeah so the the sort of production continues while yeah. you have completely stopped yeah. working yeah because it's the pavilion is, it has a rich history, mm -hmm. however, we want to see that history, but it has complexity of history. And it's also, it's part of the diplomatic process. Yeah. And I think, uh, let's say, us as artists, as curator, like being suddenly very aware that we're not going to be showing what we do in the pavilion of the country that invades another country so atrociously mm -hmm. um, we couldn't uh, just like start screaming about it and let's say to tell workers in, in, in the pavilion like stop working because we're not gonna do it right it is, I think it is like a diplomatic process because you also have a commissioner and yeah. for her it's it's another complexity of how to deal with it because she's um, directly accountable to the Russian Minister of Culture. Right, there's like a chain of command. Exactly. So who do you tell first? We spoke among the, ourselves. Okay. We spoke with Nastya Karnieva, the commissioner, mm -hmm. and it was clear that we're on the same page. Okay. Oh, it was obvious that for her it's going to be really hard time to present this yeah. new fact to the Minister of Culture of Russia. Yeah. That is part of the governmental network, obviously. Yeah. So it's all, all these aspects that mm, are really subtle mm -hmm. and edgy at the same time because it has to do also with like the artist's well-being. Mm -hmm. Because what was happening, what, what began to happen in Russia became really dangerous for people thinking differently than what the official mode is demanding. Mm -hmm. And uh, people started to leave the country, mm -hmm. but not everyone can leave. Yeah. And let's say if your subject is someone who is uh, oscillating between like uh, leaving, not leaving, uh, everyone's statements can be very, let's say the consequences of your statement can be very uh, powerful yeah. in, in, in different ways. Yeah. And so I just thought it, was, it had to be done as 
diplomatically as possible. Can I go back just a little bit and then we come back to here, but when you were saying that the Venice Biennial in general is like a soft power initiative, do you think that you as a Lithuanian man being hired to curate for the Russian pavilion is a, is a sort of diplomatic gesture or do you think they're, how did that feel? I think that constellation of different forces and factors there mm-hmm. was probably exactly the reason why uh, I took I took that invitation. Okay, how do you mean? Because, true, I'm coming from the periphery of the Russian Empire, mm-hmm. so technically, I'm I'm the colonized one mm-hmm. uh, because I grew up. Uh, for 15 years I was living in Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. It collapsed more or less when I was 15. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, myself being invited by uh, the uh, ex-commissioner of the Russian pavilion, Teresa Mavica, and the two artists, uh, because of my work in the West, because mm-hmm. I I also left Lithuania like almost 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, was a very specific uh, narrative to me. Like, what what does happen in in, in this invitation? Like, yeah. do I get like co-opted yeah. by by the empire, <laughs> or it's uh, it's an honor or it's a challenge? Yeah. And I think it's uh, I definitely took it as a challenge. Okay. And it was. Uh, not an easy moment at all hmm. to 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 reflect on on this invitation, right? Because it's uh, for for let's say many friends of mine, it could also in Lithuania mm. it could be seen as uh, really working for the for Moscow, mm. you know, especially like you know in the in 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 the national representation side, yeah. Which is maybe different from the work that you do with VAC. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. That's interesting. So it was sort of like going, going for a trouble. Yeah. But you like that a little bit sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) There was definitely a potential of trouble in in that invitation. And of course, it probably has a certain attraction. and when I say trouble, I don't mean like uh, hurting right. people or you know hurting anyone's like uh, feelings or emotions. Mm. But but let's say that whole narrative of like what 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 does it also mean for me to be invited to curate Russian Pavilion through the kind of through the Western Gate? Yeah, because it's not that uh, I'm living in Russia. In that uh, respect. I also suddenly play like a bit of a kind of like a colonizer mm-hmm. role because you know how like the Western art world is yeah. this kind of hegemonic structure that you know around the world. Let's say like the principles of the Western art world. Yeah. And so what does what does happen when me from the former Russian Soviet Empire somehow through some kind of swirl of like uh, mm, history yeah. arrives through the yeah. Western Gate to to the Russian Pavilion and working with two Russian artists living in Moscow. Yeah. So that complexity to me was definitely something that daunted on me and 
probably like that pulled me yeah. through. Yeah. And do you think that that complexity in a way made the decision to withdraw all the clearer? I think with the decision to withdraw was uh, very clear to me. It had like one kind of like set of uh, reception, let's say, internationally. Mm-hmm. Another set of reception in, let's say, Lithuania. Yeah. Where it was much more sensitive. What mm-hmm. am I still doing in that position? <laughs> And you know how like uh, social media works, like uh, it's about timing and people are mm-hmm. pressing you like it's, you know, why, what are you waiting for? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, but to be honest, it's not just Lithuania. I mean, people, people from the region, like from even Armenia, they were much more like uh, sensitive to, to this issue. Like, when are you going to resign? You mean, yeah, watching you. I mean, yeah. I was. Like, as a Canadian in Brussels, I was watching. I was like, right? <laughs> when are you going to do it? You wrote me a very nice letter, Lauren, and I'm really grateful to you for that letter because it was very supportive, and mm. I, I'm i lucky to have friends like you and others who really extended emotional support right. in that state because that state of because we're talking about moment of writing. That mm-hmm. state of writing is really uh, volatile mm-hmm. and kind of abysmal. Mm-hmm. You just feel like you're writing something that no one has ever expected more from you. Than <laughs> yeah, like the stakes could not be higher. Exactly. <laughs> like any any essay that you write, like uh, yeah. no one would have the same... Of course, and expectation like any this. curatorial essay that like maybe five people will read and who cares anyways? And this is like, no, actually this matters. <laughs> exactly. Oh no, so what, so did you just kind of like get it out or did you do drafts or what was the, did you, did you talk to people as you were writing it? Cause there's some beautiful language in it too. Like, I think it's very specific that you say both politically and emotionally unbearable. And then also... I mean, we can talk more about this later, but this idea of flat falling divisions, I think is really beautiful language. Um, but yeah, what was the, so what was the process of actually getting it out in a text? I began writing it on the plane back to Brussels Okay. and uh, went to sleep mm. and woke up and continued writing. And I probably was writing it in my sleep too, mm-hmm. as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. And we are we are composite beings, so I shared with a few friends mm-hmm. to see how they feel about like ways of formulating it. Yeah. And both friends in Russia and internationally, mm-hmm. because this type of statement it goes like so like uh, in a, such a multilateral way, mm-hmm. and it has to be kind of multilaterally cautious, but also yeah. multilaterally, as a friend puts it, bold. Mm-hmm. And I think I started from my experience of being in the empire and not wanting to go back to that empire or to continue with that empire because mm-hmm. it's it literally suddenly it was all about imperialistic uh, evil. Yeah. And 
it was very important for me to share my emotions about the two artists. Yeah. Because working with Sasha and Kirill was a very, very stimulating and complex process. Or let's call it a conversation. Mm-hmm. Each time three of us would speak, I would get carried away into like uh, most complex uh, landscapes of philosophy, history of religion, mm. uh, technology, science fiction. <laughs> and uh, those were like almost like sessions. Right. And the wonderful thing with Sasha and Kirill was that, of course, like uh, there would be some limitations to those conversations, meaning that like Sasha has a child and he needs uh, attention Mm -hmm. also but sometimes three of us would just like flow in a long long dense river of uh, associations and reasoning and Mm -hmm. uh, concerns Mm -hmm. and visions and so that project that we were working on is somewhere now in some kind of like a limbo state right. half finished half half dead half undead like alive hard to say mm-hmm. maybe in in that limbo state for some time it, it it can also be transforming in that limbo state right like how you're writing when you're sleeping exactly mm. but it was very important for me that they feel that they are big part of uh this resignation mm-hmm. and big part of the commitment to let's say my commitment to a different Russia than the one that is invading other countries and the one that is uh, waging uh, wars and uh, speaking about liberation and speaking about uh, history in a in a very imperialist uh, narrative. Mm-hmm. So there is different Russia. There are different Russias. I mean, Russia is not something monolithic and hegemonic. And right, and I think your statement, um, you know, for for it being so short, you make very specific mention of the idea of not wanting, um, like, kind of the cultural world of Russia to be pushed aside or bullied or completely forgotten because this is happening. You suggest like multi-leveled forms of solidarity, um, and what did that look like throughout this process for you? What it probably entails is some more complex ways of thinking how to deal with a situation rather than just reject mm-hmm. uh, and typecast people because they come from Russia. Mm-hmm. and. Kirill Savchenkov, he very nicely put it that actually like not allowing people to leave or not giving them bank cards abroad, Mm -hmm. Russian people, and leaving, and especially those who actually want to leave and sort of forcing them to stay there, it's sort of throwing them into the regime's uh, meat grinder. Mm-hmm. Because they will they will be like the f- first victims of repressions mm-hmm. unless they I don't know unless they go really underground with it or stay silent and 
So there is that whole like uh, very very like I think traumatic field of how you can be operating, but uh, definitely like the the West's uh, reluctance uh, accept some of those people or let's say making it very difficult for them to leave mm-hmm. actually dooms them for uh, for big trouble back there yeah. in Russia. Yeah. And then at some point. Who knows? I don't want to be like I don't want to be a prophet, but like who knows what? I have no idea actually what what is going to be happening in uh, with Russia. Yeah. I just hope that somehow that that regime is you know how as they call it like contained or yeah. dispelled or but it's also like it's it's it seems like. So far, like I, I haven't spoken to a single person who had any optimism about yeah. it. And talking with uh, one of the artists, an interesting thought somehow uh, came my way that, in a way, like the big part of the Russian society, especially like uh, you know intellectuals, uh, creative people they somehow already like they were expecting that this is gonna happen like that mm-hmm. this something like this a disaster of this type mm-hmm. may happen mm-hmm. because their the development of the last 10 years was sort of leading to more and more restrictions mm-hmm. more and more repressions and so somehow like their soul was already sort of broken right and what happened with the beginning of the war was just like a confirmation or a kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Right. And that also like puts them in a sort of like a powerless position because you are, you are then like almost like hypnotically uh, floating in that powerlessness that is not of your choice. Right. And is it maybe also a way of like learning how to live in the day to day? And it's like if you're slowly bought, brought into this like pot of water that eventually becomes boiling, like you learn how to how to handle it. And so once it's boiling, you almost can't even tell the difference, um, or at least you feel as though you can survive. So and you've been working so hard to survive. So why would you throw that away? I think you describe it very, very precisely. Hmm. And when I speak about uh, those who try to leave and those who stay, hmm. a colleague was also giving me a very like simple example. She was saying, "Look, I escaped, uh, uh, but like now, like if I want to have a job in the West, yeah. I need to declare my." anti-Putin stance. Right. But in Russia, that stance would mean 15 years in prison. Right. And so what do you do? Yeah. It's a very, very difficult position to be in. Yeah, and I think I wanted to ask you about that, about your statement, because you you say, you use the word explicit. You explicitly come out against it, which is not, you know, 
what we've been seeing from, say, cultural organizations in Russia, where it's like, you know, this is a problem and we're going to shut down or, you know, cease exhibitions. But but as you say, that explicit statement, which comes with a jail sentence of saying, I am against this totally. I mean, that is a, yeah, that's a statement that you made. And it sounds like it, it wasn't even a, like it wasn't a decision that you weighed. You had to make the you had to make that statement. But um, yeah, what does that actually mean now, practically? Like you will not be able to go back to Russia. I was thinking, like, will I ever go back to Russia in my lifetime? Because really? if Russia is uh, like this, yeah. Well. Maybe there is that sort of optimistic uh, thin line that that regime gets toppled down faster than we all think. Yeah. It would be so amazing. Yeah. But the way it is now, like, I, I don't think anyone would be going to Russia ever soon. Then maybe I want to hear about, just to think about the reception of this, but also what it means for you in Lithuania. I think in Lithuania, it was a sense of relief. Okay. That finally this this has happened. I think that Lithuanian artistic community likes complexities. Okay. And the complexity of me accepting this invitation uh, was running there like uh, since it happened mm. so i think it was somehow part of the thought right collective thought right but uh, since the be beginning of the war of course uh, this is not anymore a complexity yeah it becomes a matter of a clear decision yeah so relief like do you think people thought that maybe you wouldn't withdraw i had some people contacting me and really asking, like, is it true that you're not going to be withdrawing? Oh, wow. And I, I understand. So we are so emotionally uh, volatile and shaken in, in a situation like this. Mm -hmm. All of us. And suddenly, like, we find each other, like, in a very, very paranoid state. Myself mm -hmm. including, like I, I was communicating with friends in Moscow and suddenly realizing that I have like some really paranoid thoughts in that communication that like maybe I said something wrong, mm -hmm. maybe I used word war in the channel that would undermine them. Yeah, yeah. And uh, suddenly like I had like a one day of this sort of paranoidal state. Hmm. But I guess, like, also, you know, people in Moscow, Russian people are known for being very resilient and uh, knowledgeable of how to practice all kinds of ways of to be with these type of, like, repressive right. environments. So, of course, like, people will find their ways how to be. Mm -hmm. huh. Did you find that you had to access things that maybe you had learned when you were a kid? Well, growing up in Soviet system, 
probably meant that you don't take anything for granted. Mm. That you, you're very aware that like whatever is being told to you is some kind of bullshit. Okay. It's some kind of official uh, propaganda. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe we were not calling it lies mm-hmm. back then. But when you uh, observe how, let's say, Russian leaders are speaking now, mm-hmm. they, they are lying. And they lied like for 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 some time. Of course, they, they come up with like uh, mechanisms of mm, justify for themselves mm-hmm. of how they are doing it because they they say like we're not going we're not not gonna invade Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And they still claim that this is not what they're doing because because right. they don't call it an invasion. They don't call it an invasion. Mm-hmm. They call it a special military operation. Right. So. They come up with these idiotic uh, mechanisms of lying, mm. and they just do it like openly mm-hmm. and like uh, somehow uh, ridiculing other leaders, like uh, like French president who goes there and sits at this thirty meter table, <laughs> and mm. and uh, and the and the man at the end of that table is just lying to him, mm-hmm. and this is hard to. Hard to somehow fathom how to how to live with that, and yeah. and uh, there is that complexity of I think Russian culture and Russian social system that, uh, and now I'm, now I'm talking like from my own personal experience or perception of it, mm-hmm. the sense of fear is somehow permeating permeating many many different aspects of everyday life hmm. the sense of fear and the sense of danger that actually there may be a political danger or there may be a professional danger someone can like uh, someone can betray you or someone can blackmail you right and there is that sort of it's like a social fabric in some way or let's yeah. say like you no know, one layer of social fabric and of course, you can think of the whole tradition of like going from, let's say, Tsars, I mean, this whole autocracy tradition. Uh-huh. Russian writer Vladimir Sorokin, he had a very nice article about Russian leader. And the way he was describing it very simply was that since uh, Ivan the Terrible, uh, Russian leader, needs to be uh, impenetrable, mm-hmm. ununderstandable, but someone that everyone fears. Yeah. And in a way, if you, this is how he traces back this like uh, lineage to the current leader. Mm-hmm. It's, it's what it is now also, like fear is there. Mm-hmm. And I think that fear was like growing increasingly in the last uh, few years. I almost don't want to ask these questions because it seems so, it seems so like beyond, um, what is important, but do you intend to continue to be involved with the Venice Biennial in any other way? You know, Lauren, when, uh, I did Lithuania and Cyprus pavilions Mm -hmm. in 2013, afterwards I would often return to Venice and I would walk and I would think, 
when would be the next time I'm doing something in Venice Biennale? Yeah. And then this totally unexpected invitation came. Russia. Like, it's something that I would have <laughs> never, ever expected. Right. It was so, so out of any, like, coordination system to me. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe that's also was the, you know, part of the reason to accept it, because it's just like, uh, it's from another sort of paradigm. Right, so yeah. just... Uh, so now, I don't know, maybe American Pavilion. <laughs> <laughs> swinging with empires yeah it's funny like when that day when it's like of course time for anecdotes but last time I went to pick up something from the pavilion mm -hmm. I came to the Giardini and I asked the guard for uh, for my accreditation he didn't have my accreditation and it's I think it's Saturday evening, mm. beautiful mm. Saturday evening. But I say, do you have the keys from the Russian pavilion? <laughs> he gives me the keys from the Russian pavilion. I go with those keys and try each of them. None of them works. Mm. And then I go behind to the terrace and I push the door and it opens. <laughs> uh, later I found out that the keys that they gave me was from another pavilion. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but that beautiful evening I was walking in Giardini because it was uh, absolutely empty. Mm. And the only place where there was sound of wearing and knocking something, some work going on was the United States pavilion. Right. And that was so symbolic in a way, like here is me with the uh, wrong keys. <laughs> of a Russian pavilion who managed to enter it through the back door because they were left open. Yeah. And then the only place where someone is working is the United States. <laughs> is this your propaganda for the West? <laughs> <laughs> so as part of the podcast, we usually do a series of rapid fire questions. Mm -hmm. Again, it's like asking you about, you know, will you go to Venice? It's like, are these questions important? But I, I also understand you to be like a really interesting writer. And I think I would like to ask you these questions anyways. Sure. Um, okay. Do you like writing? Writing is one of my favorite things to do, but I, I do it not so often. Why don't you do it so often? Hmm. I guess I somehow collapsed writing together with uh, daydreaming. And so instead of like a disciplined practice of putting language in whatever file you're putting uh, that language, I'm writing situations that I'm observing in, in, in just everyday life. Mm. Meaning that like uh, there is that sort of... Uh, excess of the situation that is perceived a bit as a as some kind of fiction mm -hmm. so it's there like all the time but writing is a practice and it's a discipline mm -hmm. and when it comes to that I'm very much like you Lauren who becomes asocial mm. and you feel guilty 
mm-hmm. when UI is social mm-hmm. because there are so many other interesting things to do. Uh, I remember how like there was a period in my life where I made a very clear decision that after publishing of my first and only book, yeah, almost 10 years ago, <laughs> that now I will move all that energy and thinking into curating. Oh, that's interesting. Because I felt that what you do in an essay yeah. uh, takes a lot of time uh, and the impact of it is somehow quite limited. Yeah. And what you can do with other people in a much more pragmatic field mm-hmm. in actually making things happen can be as creative and fiction rich mm-hmm. and very satisfying. And that was a very clear decision to me that I moved to curating much more hmm. than writing. Hmm. And then some time came where I spent like a couple of years writing more than curating also. So it's sort of like shifts. Yeah. Okay. Like waves. Yeah. But writing to me is sort of like a it's a side way live. Hmm. But it doesn't mean that it's always discipline and yeah. practice driven. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, who do you write for? <laughs> Myself as my imaginary friend. Yeah, <laughs> that's sort of my answer too. <laughs> But there are specific people. Hmm. There are very concrete people I write for and Hmm. They're always there in the mind. Because you often write in the format of a letter. True. I think it's it's sometimes pathetic. Why? Because it's obsessive. It's like, hmm. I think my writing is, uh, let's see, like if to make a kind of meme out of it, it would be like, <laughs> I always write <laughs> love letters and then letters of... Uh, asking for forgiveness <laughs> <laughs> so this is let's say like uh, this is the model of uh, that is probably, exactly <laughs> love and regret love and regret exactly this is a good question for you what is the sort of mise-en-scene of your writing like what do you wear do you have to have a specific thing maybe some tea a specific smell <laughs> Do you have a ritual around it? To be honest, writing to me is about like maximum isolation I can I can exert. Mm-hmm. And if I can just close myself in my bed mm-hmm. and not to be bothered by anything else, because as you know, that's what that process requires. Yeah. This is what I do. Yeah. And if I can produce like a certain amount of words without having to go to the kitchen or anywhere else. It's perfect. Yeah. And that's why like, well, a nuance of this answer would be that actually hotels mm-hmm. are great for that because you are also not in charge of whatever is happening in the kitchen <laughs> and you don't have to take care of the house. Yeah. So you can, you can totally dedicate yourself to that. Yeah. Isolate the time in, in the bed. Yeah. Doing the laundry is a, is a big problem for me when I'm writing. I'm like constantly always doing laundry. How interesting. A friend from Moscow, he texted me that 
he really recommended me to use uh, tuning forks huh. to get into like some kind of state of serenity and calm mm. in, 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 in the current state of the world. Mm -hmm. And then I suddenly realized that what also works well to me is to watch uh, the washing machine mm. drum spinning. Mm -hmm. Because of course it's uh, hypnotic. It's, it's this hypnotic movement, and you also know consciously and unconsciously that it's about something getting washed. Yeah. It's about something getting clean. Yes. And it's a very uh, reassuring feeling, isn't it? Absolutely. It's like this feeling of some kind of accomplishment is being made, but no real energy is being expended. But I don't. I don't write with uh, with the washing machine. No. No. <laughs> that would be cumbersome with all of the traveling you have to do. Yeah, that, that's, that's your uh, style, Lauren. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. How do you know when you're writing something, how do you know that it's done? It's probably a, a sense of feeling that something has been mm, accomplished as you were imagining it, or it went beyond imagination. Mm. Just a sense of feeling. Okay. And how do you know how to start something, or how do you start something? I start in multiple places, like in multiple places and different times. Mm -hmm. So lots of different beginnings. Mm. And uh, again, like, the kind of fundamental question is how to get into that mood of isolation and dedication to that to what you're doing so there could be lots of beginnings but if that one beginning it draws you in mm -hmm. and you actually you can follow the line of thought and language mm -hmm. and you see that some kind of shape is emerging then it's great yeah you have to sort of ride it out yeah what is the text that you want to write, but you know you never will? I don't think I have that kind of text in mind. I know that there are lots of texts that I want to write. Mm -hmm. mm, but You think you're going to get to all of them? But hopefully they are not the ones that I will never okay. do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's hopeful. The last question is always... I think you've already said about this, but um, what is the pleasure of writing? Witnessing the emergence of something that is somehow with you and beyond yourself. And that is in front of you now and somehow it's both familiar and alien. Mm -hmm. And somehow inviting, maybe even to revisit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, thank you, Raimundas. Momus the Podcast is edited by Jacob Irish. We would like to thank Raimundas Malachowskis for his contribution to this season, and a special thanks to everyone who's supporting the podcast. You can find us at patreon.com slash Momus Art or contact me about making a one-time contribution at skygooden at momus.ca. Your support truly, truly makes a crucial difference. 
This has been episode 37 of Momus the Podcast. <laughs>